there's uh, lots of movies where the plot centers around like some sort of like major disaster. And I was telling, I was asking Katie, you know, there's like so many of them, it was like hard to think of. I was like, what's a movie that there's some sort of disaster coming? And she said, uh, The Day After Tomorrow, which I think is, I don't know, like 20 years old or something uh, at this point. But I just like watched the trailer and it had the exact plot that I remembered those types of movies having. Usually there's like some guy, you know, stationed in some really remote, like scientific, you know, tower or lab or something like off the coast of Alaska or something like that. And like he never sees anybody. He's been there for like 30 years. Nothing exciting has happened. But all of a sudden he's watching, I don't know what it would be, like the, the atmosphere or the, the ocean, what's going on in the ocean. All of a sudden there's a little, you know, alarm that goes off and he's like, oh no, oh no. And, you know, he tries to call the people that could do something about this that need to be heard, you know, politicians or leaders in the government. And usually there's some part where people don't really get it. They don't take it as seriously as they should. It's like, yeah, 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 like, you know, that's happening. It's not a big deal. Or sometimes he calls a character uh, that is, you know, in Washington, D.C., and then they're like, oh, we got to go get this before the president. we got to tell the people, like, something's coming. We've got to do, you know, evacuate the coasts or whatever it is because there's some sort of flood coming. And usually nobody believes this person. Uh, politicians, leaders refuse to accept like there's a disaster coming that's going to wipe out you know, the country or there's a tornado bigger than anything you've seen or there's some sort of flood coming. The day after tomorrow, if you haven't seen it, there's just like multiple crazy um, weather things happening, tornadoes and hurricanes and whatnot. Um, and so people are trying to warn all those in charge to protect people. And they're like, no, like I don't see it. And then at some point, usually it becomes clear like, okay, we see for real this disaster's coming. Like, we see a huge tornado or some city just got wiped off the map. And then they say to, you know, the person who's been trying to convince them, what do we do? You know, we, we, we believe you now. What are we going to do? And perhaps for yourself, consider what would it take to convince you that disaster is coming and you need to turn your life around in order to avoid it? What would it take to convince you of that, that there is disaster coming um, in the future, even though you maybe don't feel like it's coming, there's no signs of it, what would it take to convince you that there's something coming that's going to, you know, be terrible for you and you need to change uh, unless, or, and if you don't, you're, you're going to be taken away with it. And as we continue in this series, to, in the Gospel according to Luke, to seek and to save the lost, uh, Jesus is journeying from the region of Galilee where he did a lot of his ministry to Jerusalem with lots of other people who are taking the pilgrimage there uh, for Passover, which is the week that Jesus died. He died the week of the Jewish Passover. And he's teaching a lot on the kingdom of God. And in this particular section we're in, and for most of this section from chapter 9 to 19, where he's on his way there, uh, he's teaching the crowd that's kind of following along. Maybe they're just heading to Jerusalem uh, with people. Maybe they've heard of Jesus, so they're kind of walking along with him. Uh, there's this crowd. There's people who are like critics, uh, the religious leaders who are like, uh, we don't know what this guy's about. We think he's, you know, bad news for us and our positions and, you know, the religion of Israel. And then you have people who are committed, his committed disciples who are going with him and learning from him. And a big thing that Jesus is talking about, a big theme, is uh, responding to the kingdom of God rightly. How do you rightly respond to the kingdom of God? That's Jesus' teaching. The kingdom's coming, uh, and you need to make a decision. Like, what are you going to do about that? It's, it's coming, and uh, you need to respond rightly. And so we, might, we need to ask, like, well, what is God's kingdom? If you go all the way back into the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, we discover that God's people are in slavery to the nation of Egypt. And that God tells a man named Moses, hey, I want you to lead my people out of slavery to Egypt. 
and then you're perhaps familiar at least to a certain degree with the plagues. God does these ten plagues on Egypt because the Pharaoh refuses to let his people go. Uh, and so he does these plagues, and finally Pharaoh says, okay, like, fine, go. Uh, but actually he kind of regrets, regrets his decision, pursues him with his army, but God parts the Red Sea, the people walk through it, and as Pharaoh's army are going through the Red Sea, uh, the sea collapses upon them. And so God defeats uh, the enemy of his people, his people Israel, and he brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the Ten Commandments. And this is the purpose for why I brought you out, for why I took you out of slavery, is so to have a relationship with me. I redeemed you for relationships. So you can come out and worship me now and be free um, from there. And, but God warned them. He said, I'm going to give you this land, the land I promised your ancestors, Abraham and Isaac uh, and Jacob. I'm going to give it to you, this promised land, you know, what we know today as the land of Israel. And he said, but there is a condition to it. It's if you turn from me and start worshiping other gods, if you turn away from me as your God and you know, uh, reject me, abandon me, basically commit adultery against me, um, you don't get the land anymore. I'm going to remove you from the land. I'm going to scatter you amongst the nations. Um, and what the Bible refers to this as is exile. You're going to be taken out of the place I gave you and scattered. You're going to go into exile. Uh, and actually, Deuteronomy 4.26 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. I'm going to take you out of it. But God also said, if you return to me, I'll return to you and I'll return you to the land. There's this promise in there. Uh, and so they, eventually they did come back to the land. Uh, they were scattered amongst um, first Assyria, took out the kingdom of Israel. Israel split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Assyria took out Israel, then later Babylon took out Judah, so they all were spread out. But then eventually the Persians took over Babylon and the king of Persia said, our policy is to send people back to their homeland so the people get sent back. But it's just not the same. Like They rebuild the temple. They kind of rebuild Jerusalem. But nothing's the same. The people who knew what it was like before cry because they're like, this just is not comparable to what it was like before. And so the question is, um, are we out of exile? We came back to the land, but it still feels like we're in exile. Like God isn't here. He's not present with us in the way he was before. And so they're in exile in their own land under first the uh, occupation um, by the Persians and then in Jesus' time by the Romans. And the prophets kept saying, God is going to bring a king to re uh, relieve you of this situation. A king in the family line of David, uh, that's called the Messiah, which just means anointed one in Hebrew, that this is going to be God's Messiah, and he's going to set up my kingdom on earth back in the land of Israel. You're going to be free from these people who are oppressing you, and my kingdom is going to be in the land of Israel once again. And so the promise was, one day God would send a king to defeat God's enemies, the enemy of his people. And so... I'm going over this because this is the hope and expectation and prayer of the people hearing this passage uh, that Jesus taught to them. This th these things Jesus is saying, their thought is, my hope, my expectation, and my prayer is that God would send a king, the Messiah, to defeat our enemies so we can have our land back again. That's their hope. That's their prayer. And so when the Messiah would come, when the Christ would come, those are synonyms, ones from Hebrew, one's from Greek, that is both mean anointed one. Um, God would anoint the kings with oil in the Old Testament, so the kings were anointed ones. And so as when the Messiah came, when the Christ came, uh, he would bring salvation to God's people and judgment and destruction against God's enemies. And so put yourselves in the sandals of a first century uh, Israelite, a first century Jew. Your hope and prayer.
prayer and expectation is that God will come to judge, defeat, and destroy your enemies and save you from them. So imagine you're listening to Jesus' words. How would they hit you as Jesus says these things? And so verses 54 through 56, uh, Jesus talks to them about reading the signs. And so he's been alternating back in verse 22, our previous passage. He's talking to his disciples. Um, Now in 54, he's talking to the crowds because you saw in um, uh, 22, it says, and he said to his disciples, and that continues down all the way to 54, where he says, he also said to the crowds, so he turns from his disciples to talk to the crowds. And he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. And so he's telling them, like, you know how to interpret the weather signs. When the west wind comes in, it brings this cool air off the sea and often brings rain with it. And when the south wind comes, it brings a heat wave. It could increase by 30 degrees in uh, just an hour. So it's just like this scorching heat um, that they come in. So it's like, you guys know what's happening. You can look at the weather signs, and you can see what is coming for you. And then he says to them in verse 56, You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And so he calls them hypocrites because there's these two things that don't seem to go together. You know how to interpret the weather. You put a lot of thought into that, a lot of concern, a lot of attention, but you don't know how to interpret the present time. Like you, You're looking for the signs for the weather, but you're not looking for the signs of what's happening right now in front of you uh, in your land with you. And so he's like, you pay all this attention to this, but you're not paying attention to the present time, to what God is doing. And so you can interpret these weather signs to know what's coming, but you're not interpreting the signs to know what's coming uh, in terms, in this present time of what's happening right now. And so we might ask, well, what what is coming? You know, Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, this whole message has been about God's kingdom, that uh, the kingdom of God is near. He's bringing it, he's announcing it, and it's coming. And he's basically saying, you can see the signs. So if we flip back just to Luke chapter 4, 18 through 20, Jesus, this is right when he begins his ministry. Uh, he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. Then he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he reads from uh, the prophet Isaiah. So chapter 4, verse 17 of Luke, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, see that word, anoints, that's what the Messiah, the Christ is, an anointed one, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what are the signs? Jesus says, what I'm about to do is good news to the poor, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, the oppressed will be set free, uh, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, which is basically proclaiming the time of God's forgiveness of your debts against him. And then if we flip a little further, chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, uh, John the Baptist, um, you might remember from the beginning of Luke, he's preparing people to uh, receive God's king that he's bringing, to receive Jesus. He's preparing the way. Um, but then eventually he's thrown in prison by one of the um, local rulers, by Herod. Uh, and so then he's wondering, like, the Messiah was supposed to come uh, and defeat our enemies, restore a good government, restore God's kingdom to Israel, 
But what gives? I'm uh, in prison here. <laughs> and so he asks, are you the one to come or should we be looking for someone else? Like, I shouldn't be in prison if I'm on God's side and you're the Messiah. Like, I should be set out free from prison. So you can see, John, I'm having this question. Like, why am I still in prison if you are the Messiah? I was preparing the way for you. And Jesus, so John asked this question. Uh, and then in verse 21, it says this. John sends his disciples to ask that. And then the narrator says this in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who are blind, he bestowed sight. And he, meaning Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, poor of good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And so Jesus, very similar list of signs that he gave in chapter 4. Look, Poor are hearing good news. Blind are receiving sight. The lame are walking. The diseases are being healed. Demons are being cast out. John, here's what you're asking if I'm the one who's to come. Let me just tell you what's happening. Can you read the signs? And so Jesus is saying God is saving his people. God's kingdom is coming. The signs are there. And you're reading the weather, but you are not. You're very paying attention to the weather and reading those signs, but you're not paying attention to the signs of what God is doing among you right now. His kingdom is coming. And so that's kind of the theme. God's kingdom is coming. And then the next three little chunks of passage tell, basically telling people to do something. They're warnings to do something before it's too late. And so Jesus is like, God's kingdom is coming. You guys aren't paying attention. Let me give you three warnings. Do this before it's too late. So the first is in verses 57 through 59 of Luke chapter 12. Settle your debt before it's too late. Settle your debt before it's too late. So verse 57, he says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Basically he's saying, you tell me what makes sense in this situation. I'm going to give you a situation, you tell me what sense. You, what, what makes sense to you? Judge uh, for yourselves what is right. And so he describes it. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last, very last penny. In this situation, we're clued into what it means um, by the word officer, which is used twice in verse 58. Um, and that word is someone who holds a financial office. Uh, and they kind of um, are a bailiff for um, debt jail. Like if you're in debt, you're not paying it back, this officer is the person who like puts you in prison and watches over you. So he's saying, like, you have your accuser, you're not paying your debt, and they're taking you before the judge, the magistrate, the person who can um, tell you, like, well, I guess you're going to debt jail. Um, and he says, settle with them before you're brought before the judge and you get thrown in jail. Like, settle your debt um, before you, this happens, before the officer throws you in. And so the parable, he's telling them, here's the situation you are in. You are someone who is in debt. You are in debt to God. And so settle your debt with him before it's too late. You're getting brought before the judge you, so you know you have the debt. And don't just procrastinate. Don't put it off. Settle your debt before it's too late. Because at some point it's going to be too late. You're going to be brought to debt prison and thrown in. And at that point you can't settle your debt anymore. And if we went back to Luke chapter 4 that we read before, the very last line Jesus read from Isaiah was uh, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And I mentioned um, already that this is basically a time when God is declaring forgiveness of people's debts against him. Uh, the year of the Lord's favor is referring to a practice in the Old Testament called the year of Jubilee. It occurred like every 49 years um, where people's debts would be 
Um, they'd be released from them. Um, it was like this system in Israel that was supposed to not keep people enslaved as uh, debt slaves, paying off debt. You know, they might have fallen on hard times, couldn't run their farm anymore or whatever it is. And so they had to sell themselves to somebody else or they owed somebody too much that they had to become slaves. This was kind of a way to, um, it's almost like the welfare system. Like the way that your family doesn't starve to death is to become a servant in somebody else's household. And now they take care of you because they have the means and the resources to do so. But you weren't, your family, you and your family weren't supposed to stay in this situation forever. Every 49, 50 years, debts were released. You're released from your debts. They're paid off. You get to go back and go do life without being a servant anymore um, of somebody else. And so uh, the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus is saying, I'm declaring the, the time when God is forgiving your debts. The year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee, has come. Guess what? All of you are in debt to God, and God is saying, if you want it, you can be debt-free. You can receive forgiveness for your debt that you owe to me. And this isn't money. This is uh, sin, disobedience, rejecting God, turning from him that... Uh, we owe him something. And if you just think about how we forgive people, when something, somebody does something to you that's hurtful, uh, you can do one of two things. You can try to have payback, that you're paying them back by doing something to them or getting them to make it up to you, so that's payback. Or you can forgive them. You can say, you hurt me, but I'm not going to seek repayment. I'm just going to release you from that. And so we have two choices with God. Either we can try to pay it back to him or we can receive his forgiveness where he says, you don't need to pay it back to me. Um, but if we continue to say, I don't want the relationship, God. I don't want your forgiveness. I want to earn it. I want to pay you back to you. Like, it doesn't work. He doesn't accept that. Uh, so we need, he's saying, make peace with God. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, um, one of Jesus' later followers is describing what his ministry is. Um, this is you know, like 30 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. And he's saying, our, our ministry is this. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. And in some way, that's what Jesus is doing here. Like, I'm imploring you, be reconciled to God. Settle your debts. Receive the forgiveness that he is offering to you. Be reconciled to God. Make peace with him before it is too late. And you have to suffer the consequences. And so that's one. Settle your debt before it's too late. Secondly, repent before it's too late. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Repent before it's too late. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there's a pretty common assumption in the Old Testament um, amongst people. It's not necessarily what God teaches, but the assumption is bad things happen to bad people. Um, you, we all probably think that to a certain degree. It's kind of the wisdom of the world. The way work, the world works is if you do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to get put in prison. You're not. If you try to, you know, I'm just astounded by all the scams that people have. We posted some stuff on Facebook. And people are trying to scam me to you know, do whatever it is that they're doing. And it's like, some people are trying to make a living by scamming people. And in general, bad things happen to bad people. Eventually, they'll probably be caught, perhaps put in prison. Um, you know, so in general, bad things happen to bad people. Uh, and so the assumption is, if God is causing you suffering, you must have done something wrong. 
And you see this in the book of Job, where Job's friends, he experiences immense suffering. And then Job's friends come, and they stay with him for a while in silence. But eventually they're like, okay, Job, come on, let's hear it. It's confession time. Like, obviously your life has just been ruined. So it's plain to us that you must have done something bad. So let's hear it. Spit it out. Um, there's an assumption there. But that whole book shows that Job actually was blameless. He was innocent. He was righteous. And he was uh, suffering righteously, innocently. And so the whole book is telling us like there's greater mystery in how suffering works than just simply making a formula. If you do bad, you will suffer. Bad things will happen to you. And so Jesus agrees with this uh, teaching of Job and the others placed in the Old Testament. So these people bring up some Galileans. Uh, they were killed while they're giving their sacrifices by Pilate. You know, you'll know later that Pilate is the one who senses Jesus to crucifixion. That Pilate killed these people when they're offering their sacrifices. And Jesus is like, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other people there? He's like, no. But if you don't repent, the same thing's going to happen to you. And then next, he brings up, there's this tower in Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam, fell on people. And he says, do you think they're worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, but unless you repent, you all will perish like they did. And so a side point of these is that suffering is not directly tied to sin or offense against God. Jesus is saying, like, they didn't die because they were worse sinners. But his main point also is, uh, you all are worse off than you think. If you're thinking that this disaster happened to them is because they're worse sinners, um, that's not the case. But uh, you're worse off than, than you think. Because if you don't repent, something like this will happen to you, whether it's um, standing for God in judgment or whether it's judgment in a physical way on earth. So if you think you're better than them, so it would never happen to you, think again, because disaster is coming if you do not repent. Third part, he says, bear fruit before it's too late. Verses 6 through 9. It says, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit in this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So once again, he tells a parable to show them, here's the situation you find yourselves in. It's like this situation. Um, there's this fruitless tree. The owner had it planted. He comes. He's been looking for fruit on it. It's not producing, right? So his whole thing is, I need to produce fruit in order to make money. This tree's taking up room. Um, so he tells the vine dresser, the one who kind of like um, takes care of the trees, like, well, cut that one down. We're going to put a new one in its place. And the vine dresser has this little plan. Well, let's, let's, give, it, let's give it a little time. Let's give it a little help. Uh, let's uh, dig around its roots, kind of loosen up the soil there so the, the roots can move out a little more. Um, some water can get in there better. It's a little more loosened. Put manure, get a little fertilizer there. Let's just see what happens. Let's help it give it a little time. And we see from this parable that um, God wants to see his people bear fruit. And he gives us time and he gives us help to do so. This is a theme in the Old Testament. Um, you can look at Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, or Micah 7, 1, that God, when he looks at his people, he wants to see fruit. And when he doesn't see it, he tells them, like, I'm expecting to see this fruit, but it's not there. Um, fruit in the sense that um, changed lives, um, doing good things, worshiping God from our heart, loving God, loving other people. And then you also, we've also seen it several times in 
Gospel according to Luke so far, when John the Baptist was preaching, he told the people, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so if you repent, there should be fruit that's being born in relation to that repentance according to it. Um, Jesus said in uh, Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6, you know a, tr- a tree is known by its fruit. Bad fruit doesn't come from a good tree. Good fruit doesn't come from a bad tree. So if you have good fruit, that means you're a good tree. If you have bad fruit, you're a bad tree. In Luke chapter 8, he talks about the seed of the gospel that falls on good soil and then grows and bears much fruit. And then other passages, I'll just mention one later in the New Testament, that Paul, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, that God wants to see fruit in, in his people. Or John 15, Jesus talks about, Abide in me, and you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can't. But I'm the vine, you're the branches. The vine, or the branch, needs to connect to the vine in order to bear fruit. Now, so this is a big concern of Jesus, of God's. And so he's saying, like, look, um, I've been here within the people of Israel, and the fruit isn't being seen. I'm not seeing fruit. But then this vine dresser is like, well, let's give it a little more time, give him a little more help. So there's this mercy, and there's this patience. Like, God wants to see his people bear fruit. It's not just this, like, sorry, do it yourself, I'm not going to help you. But God is like, I'm going to help my people. He wants people to repent so they don't perish. And he mercifully and patiently waits for people to do so, giving many opportunities. This parable says that offer is not forever. There will be a time that it will be too late. And last week we did, there was a couple parables, and I just want to again uh, give, say, how to interpret parables is not to find how each element corresponds to reality. Um, So one way we could, this parable we just read, uh, would be, okay, so God is the owner of the vineyard, um, and he sees people not bearing fruit, and he's like, cut it down. And then Jesus says, no, 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 God, let me help it. I'll give it we'll give it a little time um, so, so they can bear fruit. That is not the way to interpret this parable. You don't equate the owner with God and the vine dresser who's going to help it with Jesus. Because you see the, pic, the poor picture of God the Father we have there? Um, and uh, John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Therefore, Jesus' character is representative of the Father. Jesus doesn't save us from grumpy old God. Uh, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, patient, abounding in love. And Jesus is representing that as well. So how do we make this personal? Jesus is speaking to God's people. And they think they will be in God's kingdom. It's an assumption for them. Uh, Salvation is for them. Judgment and destruction is for their enemies. But Jesus gives them a different message. Like That's what their hope, their expectation is. God one day will come save us and judge our enemies. But Jesus' message to them is, you will be destroyed if you don't change. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to Jewish people, God's people, the ones he saved in the Exodus. Um, he destroyed the Pharaoh, the Egyptians. Now he's talking to God's people. Look, you have become God's enemies, and you are at risk of being destroyed if you do not repent, if you don't change what... You're doing. Disaster is coming. They think disaster is coming for others and not for them. But Jesus says, no, it's coming for you if you don't make a change of direction here. And so Jesus is saying, God's kingdom is coming. The humble are included in that kingdom. The pride are excluded and are, the prideful are excluded and opposed. 
And so his basic message is, get right with God before it's too late. Like, look, this is coming. The time of salvation and judgment is coming. And which side are you going to be on? The humble are going to be saved. Uh, the prideful are going to be rejected and destroyed and judged. And so get right with God before it's too late while you still can. And so both then and now, it's easy for us to assume we're in God's kingdom when we're not. And I'm not, you know, when I was writing this, I'm not, wasn't having any particular persons uh, in mind about like who of us might be in or who's not. I basically just assume you all are. You all are saying you trust in Jesus. Um, but this message is what Jesus is preaching. He's talking to, if you want to put it in our language, he's talking to the church. Is Jesus coming and standing before a church of people who all would assume I'm good with God? Why? Well, I come to church on Sundays. I, uh, I give money. I, I serve. I pray for people. I read my Bible. I try to do good things. And Jesus is talking to people just like us and saying, you guys, you don't see it. You haven't repented. You're, you're faking it. You haven't given your heart to God. Get right with God before it's too late. That's his message that he's giving to people. And we might think, well, I'm in. And that's what Jesus here has thought. But he says, he said, you know, back in, we looked back to chapter 11, uh, where he said, like, you religious leaders, you would think of all people, the pastors of those people, that God's kingdom is for them. But he tells them, look, you're doing all this stuff, but your heart, you haven't given your heart to God. You're keeping it back from him. You're going through the motions. You're doing this for other motives other than love for God or love for other people. And for us, it's possible to be religiously active but relationally far from God. And it's one of the most um, difficult, I want to say situation, it's not the right word, but it's so easy to fool ourselves if we're religiously active because we think this is what God wants, right? I just kind of have my checklist and I check the things off that mean I love God or I'm a Christian or whatever, but God's always going deeper, deeper saying, I want your heart. I don't want a checkbox. I want you. I want you to be all in to give it all to me. I don't want you to be religiously active. I want you to be relationally close to me, that I mean something to you, that I make a difference, that I'm the top of the list uh, in terms of priorities and importance. And it's possible for us to continue to be do religious things without knowing the why. Um, just coincidentally, I wrote Jesus' why on that little board back there. Um, but it's like, we can continue doing all this stuff. I could continue standing up here and talking to you for the next 20 years and not be connected with the why, to be uh, putting on a show and to be religiously active and yet relationally far, that I'm keeping my heart from God. And it's sort of the, the same for all of us, all the things we do, meeting and serving and talking and planning and trying to reach people. We can do all of that while being relationally far from God, that we can lose the why of why we're doing all of those things. And so what matters to God? What does he want? Well, Jesus tells us repentance is what matters and repentance is never separated from faith if you're thinking like, um, well, I just got to trust that Jesus died for me. Um, I mean, that's not enough. That's part of it. But it's repenting. It's turning our whole life over. It's not believing a fact, but it's following the one who did die for us and dying, uh, denying ourselves and following him. And so there's two actions in repentance, turning from and turning to. So if I wanted to repent from this microphone, for example, I would turn from it and I would also be turning to something else. So... I mean, that's kind of weird. I know it's a microphone. But for instance, let's say that um, I feel safe and secure with God because, um, I don't know, I don't swear or something like that. Like, I'm not swearing. 
I'm not doing all these bad things, so I'm good with God. It's like, I'm going to turn from that thing that I'm trusting in to make me right with God, and I'm going to turn to Jesus himself as the only one who can make me right with God. And Or we can just find God replacements in life. Like, um, God invites us to come to him to find joy in him. And it's like, you know, I just find joy in TV. I find joy in, you know, sugary foods. And so we say, you know what, I'm going to turn from that, from looking for my joy and satisfaction and fullness in that. I'm going to turn from that and turn to God to find my joy and fullness and satisfaction. So there's these two actions. And we turn to God for two things. Forgiveness and fruit. Forgiveness was in chapter 12, verses 57 through 59, is that we turn to him for forgiveness. We turn from our ability to obey him, to get right with him, and we turn to him, away from our good works, in order to be right with him, because we receive forgiveness. So we turn uh, to God. Uh, repentance first involves turning to God for forgiveness. Secondly, it involves turning to God for fruit. That God, as we saw this in um, chapter 13, 6 through 9, that God brings life change. It's like if we're turning from a life of sin, of enjoying that and living for that, a life of disobeying God, we turn from that, turn to God to see life change. And now we live a life uh, with God at the center, that he changes us. And we see this illustrated like Romans chapter 6, that we die to sin, and now we're made alive to live for God. That we're leaving sin behind, um, not including its penalty, its power, its presence in our lives. We're turning away from it. We're turning to God to be forgiven and to be changed into new people. And so, I mean, it should seem obvious, right? Like, oh man, I don't want to have destruction. I don't want to be destroyed. I don't want to perish. A lot of warnings here. Do it before it's too late. What would keep these people, what would keep us from repenting, from turning from those things and turning to God? Well, in the first instance, uh, chapters t- or chapter 12, 57 through 59, they're delaying dealing with their debt to God or denying they have it all altogether, that they aren't recognizing, yeah, I've got a problem here. Like, I've acted in disobedience against God, that I've been anti-God in my life. I've kind of gotten off track with trusting Him, with loving Him. I love other things more. I trust other things more. I'm putting my hope in something else. And so they kind of maybe are just denying it or delaying getting right with God. It's like, oh, i got other things to worry about, or I don't even think it's there. I don't have a problem. So that's one reason Jesus is saying, this makes sense. Get right with God before you're thrown into debt prison. So we can deny or delay uh, dealing with our debt to God. Secondly, we can compare our sin. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, is that, you know, it's saying like, do you think these people are worse off because they experienced this disaster, this terrible death? He says, no. Uh, they aren't, because it'd be easy to be like, well, man, those people must have done something really bad. Nothing really bad's happened to me, so at least I'm not that bad. Like, I must be good with God, and we can compare our sin to others. And, uh, you know, there's three things we can say if you're in a relationship where there's, you know, something going on. You can say, well, they sinned first, or they sinned most, or they sinned worse. You know, right? Like, well, I was mean to them, but it's because they sinned first. Or it's like, well, I'm, I did that one thing, but they've sinned the most. They've done the most things to me to be hurtful. Or I can say, like, well, I know I did a bunch of things, but they've done worse. Like, they said that thing, and that's way worse than anything I did. And so we can compare to other people, like, well, oh, I'm at least not that bad. And the truth is we're worse than we realize. Thirdly, we can take God's grace for granted. This is the last parable, verses 6 through 9. So we take God's grace for granted. Is that this... In this parable, there are trees or people 
who are like just not bearing fruit, and they think they're part of God's vineyard, think they're part of God's orchard, a plantation, whatever it is, but they're not bearing fruit. They're just taking grace for granted. Like, yeah, God, I'm here. It's grace. It's good. Like, I don't have to worry about what my life is like because I'm trusting that I'm good with God because of His grace. And it's taking it for granted. And there is no faith without fruit because genuine faith always produces fruit in our lives. You can look at, I mean, there's you know, dozens of passages in the Bible that talk about if you're saying you have faith but there's no fruit, there's something wrong there. That, there's something defective about that faith. And it's not faith in a fact. Um, so, I mean, imagine like, you know, one of you, I don't know what it would be, if I offered like, hey, um, do you think I can carry uh, one of you down the stairs over there? And you might be like, yeah, I think you can do that. Yeah, you seem like kind of fit. Uh, that you could probably carry someone down the stairs. Like, okay, who would like me to carry them down the stairs? Well, I'm not going to do that. You just said you believe I can do it, right? You believe the fact that I can do it, but you weren't willing to trust me. And trust or faith in a person is being willing to go where they want you to go, to, to believe they have better for your life, that you're willing to actually let them carry you and to follow them. Like, I don't know if I like where you're going, but I trust you. I'm going to go there with you. So faith is not about facts. It's about a relationship. And in each case with these things, pride keeps us from taking our sin seriously and from, keep, from taking our relationship with God seriously. Pride keeps us trusting in ourselves keeps us from repentance. And Jesus here has thought the problem was out there. The problem is with those Romans, those Samaritans, those people who aren't faithful to God. God one day is going to defeat them and get rid of them so we get our land back. But they weren't considering the problem was in here. They weren't looking at themselves. And Jesus didn't, a lot of people thought the Messiah would come to confront the Romans. But actually what Jesus came to do is to confront their religion. Is that they were very far from God. And so he didn't come to boot out the Romans. He came to call God's people back to God himself. And then, of course, that spreads out to the world. And so how can we make this, you know, practical? Well, we're entering the season of Lent. I shared on our Facebook page and then on um, uh, WhatsApp uh, that Lent is a season in the church calendar um, where it's six and a half weeks uh, prior to Good Friday and Easter. And well, Lent is meant, Lent is a season of repentance of considering ways we've gotten away from God and getting right with Him. Not by just being better, but Lent leads us to the foot of the cross of saying, like, God, I haven't been taking these ways that have gotten away from you seriously. And you take them seriously. The cross shows me you take it seriously. That's the punishment for it. And you are willing to take it for me so I could be free of it. And so Lent is a time of repentance that leads us to the cross. Repentance isn't earning anything, but it's trying to become better people. Repentance is turning from our sin and our trust in ourselves to the one who has grace and forgiveness and salvation for us, the one who will lead us in living a new life. And so Lent is a season of repentance together. And it's a heart check. Have I become complacent? Have I been taking grace for granted? Have I been comparing myself to others, thinking like, well, I know I'm not doing too great, but at least I'm not that bad. Um, Or are we just like not dealing with our sin, taking it to God so he can relieve us of the debt? And so Lent is a time for you to ask, uh, have I stopped taking my sin against God seriously? Have we stopped taking our sin against God seriously? Have I stopped taking my relationship with God seriously? Have we stopped taking our relationship with God seriously? And repentance isn't a one-time event. It's not like, oh yeah, 30 years ago I repented when I trusted in Jesus. No. 
uh, it's a daily thing. It's a lifestyle. Martin Luther, who uh, um, wrote what's called the 95 Theses when he nailed them to um, a door in Wittenberg, um, to, which began the Protestant Reformation, uh, the first one he wrote of his theses was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And so it's a lifestyle, it's a, a daily practice, it's a pattern that we enter into, that it's like my life is dying to myself and being alive to God, repenting. And so this is an opportunity, Lent is an opportunity to get right for, with God, uh, to turn from our sin, from other ways, we've, things we've been trusting in and looking to for security or satisfaction or significance, and turning back to God. Lent is a time when we get to do that together. And obviously, like I said, it's a lifestyle, so it's not one time a year, but it's like we Advent, like Advent leads us up to Christmas. Lent leads us up to the cross where Jesus died for those things, ways we turn away from him and then was resurrected again to give us new life and to be our king. And so you also probably saw on um, WhatsApp the reading plan that we can do together. You don't have to do that. It's not a requirement, but it's like for anyone who would want to do a reading plan around Lent, um, it's a way for us to do it together, and we don't have to share like, hey, what is the thing you're turning from for Lent? Is it TV? Is it sugar? Is it, you know, we don't turn, you know, usually the question of Lent is, what are you giving up? And we don't say, well, I'm giving up sin. Well, like we're always supposed to be giving up sin, but it's like, what is the thing that's distracted you from God, that's crowded out God in your life? Uh, that's replaced God in your life. It's like, when I'm stressed, I go to this instead of God. Um, when I'm worried, I go do this instead of go to God. Or when I'm looking to not be bored or be entertained, like, I go to this instead of to God. And Lent is a time to consider, what are those patterns in our life of things that we turn to instead of God? And Lent is an opportunity to come back to God with all of our hearts. And so Lent leads us to the foot of the cross. We see in this passage Jesus saying, I want you to get right with God. Um, that can be, you know, for our first time ever when we first become Christians, but it can be every day too, like get right with God. Um, and God has made it so easy to do. Come to him for forgiveness. I'll relieve you of this. And I want to change you, so I'm with you to do that as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together that we get to consider ways that we perhaps have gotten away from you but then we hear your free invitation that you will just take us back, that you'll forgive us, that you'll renew us, that you'll make us into new people. So would you do that in each of us individually as a church family? In your son's name we pray. Amen.